It's a flavor. It's all vegetable. It's digestible. It's delicious and nutritious, bite-sized and ready to eat. It's made with real egg formula. And here's a nice-looking record package in from New York. I woke up this morning with broadcasting on my mind. WCBN. America's ace of the airways. If this instrument is good for nothing but to entertain, amuse, and insulate, and we will soon see that the whole struggle is lost. And believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. WCBN-FM. Ann Arbor. WCBN-FM. 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 Ann Arbor. WCBN-FM. A very pleasant, peaceful feeling. You relax deeper and deeper. Each downward count of my voice, ten. Relaxing deeper, nine. Letting the body gently begin to sink deeper, eight. Eight point three. Yes, it's like a... Push button radio, you see. 24 hours a day. Whether you like it or not. Oh, we're limited to a 500-mile radius now, but we're working to extend that limit. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley and uh, my partner Jim Dwyer uh, went up north for the weekend, so uh, he'll be rejoining us next week. He had to squeeze one more little vacation in before school starts. He, of course, teaches in the Ann Arbor public school system, so (laughs) he's back at it next week, Uh, which probably will be... He'll be on the job before the president. Um, Pretty slow week uh, in terms of big sort of international events, Uh, but a lot of very interesting stuff in the media about uh, oil, the war in Iraq, um, and various things. So we'll talk about some of these things. Interestingly, last week I was talking about Nixon at the Movies, a new book by uh, Mark Feeney. Uh, finished it all up and uh, saw a movie last night, very interesting movie, called um, This is Our Land. And it's a sort of one of those obscure World War II movies that was produced during the war by RKO uh, Studios, which at the time I believed was, was owned by Howard Hughes. And in it, uh, I didn't see the whole thing because I was actually down at the Joe Strummer tribute last night at the Blind Pig. Excellent performance there by uh, 
my friend Spence uh, doing the lead vocals. Uh, Spence has got a future as a class tribute band, I'm I'm sure. <laughs> and there was a good crowd. I caught the end of it. So I caught the end of this movie, and I just wanted to mention this movie. I checked out uh, if Nixon had seen it. He had not. And uh, it might be a movie that George Bush should see. Uh, it stars Charles Lawton. The featured star, I think, yesterday on Turner Movie Classics was Maureen O'Hara, who Charles Lawton, I guess, discovered at one point. Uh, he was producing movies, and uh, her debut, so to speak, was actually in a relatively obscure Hitchcock movie called Jamaica Inn. She'd played some bit roles in some movies, but this was the movie that sort of launched her as a star. And uh, later they uh, appeared together in this 1943 movie, which was about the German occupation of France. And while, without going into all the details of the plot, the ending defense in which Charles Lawton plays a sort of uh, effeminate, uh, weakling public school teacher uh, in a uh, French village occupied by the Germans. It shows this very uneasy collaboration with uh, the Germans and the French, of course. And, of course, uh, the, the word is sabotage, uh, not terrorism. But needless to say, uh, Maureen O'Hara's brother in the movie is a saboteur who is trying to disrupt the German occupation. And at the end of the movie, Charles Lawton goes through this sort of metamorphosis. He has this epiphany, so to speak, in which he realizes um, what's going on is uh, unsustainable with respect to the Germans. He was finally on to the Germans when he was offered uh, freedom, so to speak. Uh, he'd been jailed as a murder suspect in a sort of complicated, convoluted plot. Um, in which, of course, some of the French townspeople are collaborating with the Germans in exchange for peace, quote-unquote. And, of course, the movie has all of the hallmarks of a propaganda war movie in the sense that uh, this is used, uh, you know, the main thrust of the movie is used, of course, to bolster American public opinion in support of the war. Uh, I don't think there were any anti-war movies produced during World War II, and for good reason. But much of the rhetoric of the German occupying force uh, resembles much of the rhetoric that we hear from the Bush administration. And it would have been nice to know if, uh, and hopefully Bush will see this movie. I doubt he was watching Turner Movie Classics last night down there in Crawford probably safely tucked away in bed because this movie was on at 2 in the morning. But maybe he should check it out. Then he would understand uh, the problems that we face in Iraq. And, of course, this has been a big week uh, with respect to the Cindy Sheehan story. Um, Frank Rich calls this the swift boating of Cindy Sheehan in which he details how the Bush administration uh, that does not have a clear policy in Iraq has got a very clear policy against domestic opponents of the war. She, of course, has been able to create a lot of publicity by camping outside Bush's Crawford, Texas uh, vacation compound uh, where he spent the last uh, four weeks on vacation and has a couple more weeks to go, I guess. 
Bush, by the way, has spent more time on vacation than any other president in American history. And, of course, he continues to be oblivious to what's actually going on in the world. He, of course, today calls the opponents of the war either uh, retreat or isolationists, retreatists or isolationists, which is hardly the case. Uh, isolationism as a ideology in America is almost non-existent. Um, the real question is uh, imperialist or... Um, are we going down to defeat? And it's the Democratic response over the weekend was delivered by Max Cleland, who, of course, uh, lost uh, three limbs in Vietnam. The Democratic um, message um, is troubling in and of itself because it basically either offers a policy of more escalation or withdraw. So they are denouncing the uh, stay-the-course policy that the president keeps talking about. And at this point, um, the strategy in Iraq, alas, has become a situation of avoiding defeat. Victory at this point is impossible because the president's war goals are simply um, elusive to the American people. And, of course, he's been advised by top Republican advisors to resell the war to the American people. But I think he's lost the game uh, as public opinion polls continue to show declining support for the war and even divisiveness within the military. Interesting to read about an uh, article, an essay that appears in Military Review in which... Um, the officer of the 1st Cavalry Edition, Major General Peter W. Schiarelli, and I'm speculating that that's how the name is pronounced, writes that the cultural reality is that no matter what the outcome of the combat operations for every insurgent put down, the potential exists to grow many more if cultural mitigation is not practiced. Uh, that, of course, is a new phrase that we must uh, learn more about, cultu cultural mitigation. Um, he's an operations officer of the 1st Cavalry Division who writes also, if there is nothing else done other than to kill bad guys and train others to kill bad guys, the only thing accomplished is moving more people from the fence to the insurgent category, quote-unquote. There remains no opportunity to grow the supporter base. Tom Shanker, in a recent New York Times article, points out that this essay was circulated and discussed uh, in advance of its publication in soon in Military Review and argues that the American armed services suffer from a Cold War mentality that organized the chaos of wartime missions into an orderly progression from combat to stability to withdrawal. The insurgency has capitalized on that step-by-step -step process, the essay says. The essay, Winning the Peace, the Requirement for Full-Spectrum Operations, is a detailed report by the 1st Cavalry Division uh, after a long, a year-long mission in Baghdad. The essay is part of a series initiated by Lieutenant General William Wallace, Commander of Combat Armed Forces at Fort Leavenworth, where the journal is produced. General Wallace asked the journal focus on lessons learned from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And General Chiarelli 
cautions, quote, against any military plan that solely concentrated on establishing a large security force, quote, unquote, and regulating, uh, relegating, excuse me, efforts to promote municipal services, democratic local governments, and a free market economy to secondary status. Needless to say, nothing about the Constitution is in there because the Constitution, of course, is going to be in literally a piece of paper uh, concocted by the representatives that, of course, are not representative of Iraqi society. And to hear top administration officials continue to ballyhoo the uh, success of the Constitution in transforming Iraq is, uh, well, naive at best. Marine Dowd, of course, uh, calls Bush a man that's biking to nowhere, unquote, and I think that that's an excellent analysis. We'll give out Condoleezza Rice a brain damage award for stating that something very dramatic is changing in the Middle East. Uh, I'm not too sure what it is that's changing, uh, because I think the occupation has clearly been a failure and is a failure because we are sort of caught in no man's land with naive um, assumptions about the region and our imperialistic objectives. I've been reading a book this week also by John B. Judas. Uh, This was a former main editor in these times during the 1980s when I read that publication quite frequently. His book, The Folly of Empire, What George Bush Could Learn from Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson is a fairly interesting analysis of America's imperialist tradition and its past and goes into some of the difficulties uh, and unexpected problems that we incur when we um, act like imperialist powers the way the Europeans did during the 19th century. For instance, At the beginning of the book, he talks about the Philippine insurgents, and I wanted to read this briefly because I think it's fairly analogous to what we face in Iraq. Judas writes, um, John Judas writes, the um, U.S. fought a brutal war against the same Philippine independence movement it had encouraged to fight Spain. The war dragged on for 14 years. Before it was over, about 120,000 American troops were deployed and more than 4,000 died. More than 200,000 Filipino civilians and soldiers were killed, and the resentment against American policy was still evident a century later during a George W. Bush visit. And he notes that uh, Bush visited the Philippines in uh, October of 2003 uh, to throngs of anti-war protesters against American imperialism, and that even his address to Parliament, several of the lawmakers walked out in protest. Um, Needless to say, by the way, of course, there is still an insurgency in the Philippines, a Muslim insurgency in some of the islands. And John Judas has one other uh, very interesting, a couple of other interesting things that I might uh, note One regards a secret February 2001 memo from the NSC, which argues that the NSC should meld its work into the Cheney Energy Task Force, quote, the reviews of operational policies towards rogue states, 
the report said, should take into account, quote, actions regarding the capture of new and existing oil and gas fields, unquote. The energy report, which Cheney um, received in July of 2001, warned that the Middle East produces well, uh, Middle East, uh, that the Middle East produces central to the world's uh, security, because it predicted that by 2020, Saudi Arabia and Iraq and their neighbors would supply between 54 and 67 percent of the world's oil. We've heard, of course, extensive reports that Iraq was on the uh, Bush uh, imperialist agenda well before 9-11, and this secret NSC report sort of confirms that, um, which should not surprise us. Um, and whether or not uh, <laughs> that's the real reason we're in Iraq, uh, certainly the Bush administration will never acknowledge it. In yesterday's Sunday New York Times magazine, Peter Moss has an article entitled The Breaking Point, which talks in detail about the difficulty that's going on in Saudi Arabia regarding oil supplies. And uh, this is a must-read for all political uh, news junkies. Um, I believe he was actually interviewed today on Fresh Air, because I heard just the tail end of uh, what he was talking about. I missed the beginning, so I can't really report on what uh, Terry Gross uh, said on the matter. But uh, the discussion in the uh, article itself is very illuminating, because, of course, there's a debate underway about the capability of Saudi Arabia to uh, accommodate the world's growing oil problem. And uh, Moss presents uh, both sides of the picture. Uh, we had a um, Ann Arbor News story about this earlier in the week, last week, in which an expert uh, warms of doom, uh, plummeting output and global chaos is eminent, he says. It gets an ex-Princeton professor's Kenneth... DeFeus's, uh belief uh, about the world situation. And, of course, the Ann Arbor News had another front-page story about oil prices, gas prices at the pump, and who's getting the money. Oil prices have gone up for a variety of reasons, and, of course, global instability is part of it. It's interesting to note, by the way, that Iraq is now producing less oil than it did under Saddam Hussein, uh, despite skimming and whatnot. And the article in the New York Times by Peter Moss goes into the details of how OPEC members um, probably inflate their oil reserves um, because this is how they determine uh, oil production uh, quotas uh, that, of course, OPEC controls. OPEC is the leading energy cartel in the world, and, of course, Saudi Arabia is the main component of that cartel. Um, so a couple of little quotes from this Peter Moss article, because I think it's very interesting. Uh, he quotes various experts on the problems um, with Saudi oil production. And he writes, he's quoting here from a minister, an, an oil expert who uh, is named Sadad al-Husseini, who retired last year after serving as Aramco's top executive for exploration and production. Ar Aramco is the oil, Saudi Arabian oil um, government 
slash private conglomerate that controls Saudi oil production. And uh, Al Husseini uh, states, quote, you can look at the globe and ask, where are the big increments? And there's hardly anything but Saudi Arabia. He said, the kingdom and Guar field are not the problem. Guar field, by the way, is the biggest oil field in Saudi Arabia that accounts for about half of their production, as I recall. The problem is that you go from 74, or excuse me, 79 million barrels a day in 2002 to 82.5 in 2003 to 84.5 in 2004. You are leaping by 2 million to 3 million a year, and you have to cover declines. That's another 4 to 5 million barrels. This in reference, by the way, to the fact that Oman is uh, in a situation where their oil production is declining. In other words, they're tapping their fields dry, much as the Alaska oil is being tapped dry here in America. In other words, if demand and depletion patterns continue every year, the world will need to open enough fields or wells to pump an additional 6 to 8 million barrels a day, at least 2 million barrels a day to meet rising demand, and at least 4 million to compensate for the declining production of existing fields. That's like a whole new Saudi Arabia every couple of years, Husseini said. It can't be done indefinitely, and it's not sustainable. So he goes on to discuss how the Saudi um, oil production is uh, simply unable to meet rising demand. Uh, Moss continues, even if the Saudis are willing to risk damaging their fields, or even if the risk is overstated, Husseini points out a practical problem. To produce and sustain 15 million barrels a day, Saudi Arabia will have to drill a lot more wells and build a lot more pipelines and processing facilities. Currently, the global oil industry suffers from a deficit of qualified engineers to oversee such projects, and the equipment and raw materials, for example, rigs and steel to, be, to build them. These things cannot be wished from thin air or developed quickly enough to meet demand. Quote, if I had two dozen Texas A&M's producing a thousand new engineers a year and the industrial infrastructure in the kingdom with the drilling rigs and power plants, we'd have a better chance. But you cannot put into place, you cannot put that into place overnight, Husseini said. Capacity is not just a function of reserves. It's a function of reserves plus an economic systems that's designed to increase resource exploitation. For example, in the U.S., you have infrastructure. There must be tens of thousands of miles of pipeline. If we in Saudi Arabia evolve to that level of commercial maturity, we could probably produce a heck of a lot more oil. But to get there is a very tedious and slow process. The most worrisome part of the crisis ahead revolves around a set of statistics from the Energy Information Administration, which is part of the United States Department of Energy. The EA, the EIA forecast in 2004 that by 2020, Saudi Arabia would be producing 18.2 billion barrels of oil a day, and that by 2025, it would produce 22.5 million dollars a day. Those estimates were unusual, though. They were not based on secret information about Saudi capacity, but on the projected needs of energy consumers, i.e. read American consumers. So between the fact that America uh, does almost nothing to address the fact that demand increases here in America because of our inefficient transportation systems, 
and the fact that our vehicle uh, fuel efficiency has gone down and Congress and the president refused to mandate such efficiency, which uh, is very troubling. There's just simply a um, naivete about what's really going on in the world because China is increasing its car production massively because China is going through a sort of industrialization equivalent to what was going on in uh, America, say, in the 1920s, uh, we have a serious global oil problem. Uh, and these wishful think, you know, the wishful thinking that's going on in this country, uh, you know, with respect to, say, the Bush energy policy, is uh, naive at best and underscores probably why we really are in Iraq. As I mentioned earlier, we have this 2001 memo from February of 2001 in which the uh, NSC uh, advocates a melding of the Cheney Energy Task Force um, towards uh, military policies with respect to, quote, rogue states, unquote. Um, And I've pointed this out repeatedly. There are only three countries on the planet that have sufficient oil reserves to accommodate America's you know, the reality that we're running out of oil. Uh, Many experts predict that America will have virtually no oil left in its reserves uh, in uh, 10 to to 15 years, given the current rate of consumption. The United States consumes about 20 million barrels of oil a day, close to 3.5 billion barrels a year. And known oil reserves just three years ago were stated at around 22 billion barrels, i.e. a seven-year supply. Of course, we do discover uh, more oil in the, per, in the um, um, Gulf of Mexico. But as oil experts point out, we're going farther and farther out into the Gulf to find this oil. And how much oil is actually there is a... Um, rather speculative process, as Peter Moss's article points out. Um, So this is a fascinating um, article in the Sunday Times magazine section by Peter Moss, and something we'll certainly talk about more in upcoming shows of Gray Matters. Uh, Another very interesting thing that I'm just going to quit with here is an article that appears in the Sunday, or the, excuse me, the Saturday New York Times by Linda Blimes, who was an assistant secretary of the Department of Commerce from 1999 to 2001, and now teaches budget and public finance at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Her essay, The Trillion Dollar War, talks about the fact that this uh, so-called war on terrorism is going to cost close to over a trillion dollars based on current estimates. Um, She talks about the current expense already and notes uh, that we've spent $258 billion um, already on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Needless to say, a front-page story in today's New York Times by Carlotta Gall notes that the GI death toll in Afghanistan is the worst since 2001, and it talks about the uh, reconfiguration of the Taliban and tribal elements uh, in the Pakistan-Afghanistan border that are increasingly causing problems for our troops there, where, uh, once again, we don't have enough troops on the ground. Further incompetence by the Bush administration, and, of course, we don't have bin Laden anywhere near in 
custody. So this war, uh, this analysis by uh, Linda Blimes p- talks about the veterans' cost. It talks about the future uh, deploy, the operational problems, because we're hearing that we may be in Iraq till 2009 from some military highbrow this week. Talks about the deficits in terms of the interest costs for financing the war, in which the president refuses to raise taxes to pay for the war, as uh, previous wars other than Vietnam, interestingly, were paid for with increased taxes and other things like consumer rationing, such as World War II. Um, You know, going to the veterans of foreign wars and uh, driving around in your SUVs with support the troops isn't going to get the job done. Uh, Not when the war is costing $6 billion a month. Not when the expenses for veterans costs are estimated to be over $300 billion uh, from these two wars. Uh, This includes medical education and housing loans. And of course, Congress is always advocating that we support the troops. This is a new slogan that has no meaning because the uh, money is simply not being uh, produced uh, to support the troops. It's all empty rhetoric. It's all camps sloganeering, and it is, at the end of the day, total nonsense. Um, So uh, this is a fascinating uh, little blurb about the um, expenses. Uh, This includes, by the way, uh, more than $2 billion a year in additional foreign aid to Jordan, Pakistan, Turkey, and others to reward their cooperation in Iraq and Afghanistan. The bill for repairing and replacing military hardware is $20 billion a year, according to the CBO. So we'll go into some more of her analysis next week. Uh, we, unfortunately, are out of time down here on Gray Matters. We'd like to thank Nathan for engineering. Do stay tuned. Uh, Yazoo City Calling is coming up ne- next right here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, presumably with good old Jerry Mack.